Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Music, Money, and Life podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by HowToLicenseYourMusic.com. If you're interested in learning how to make money licensing your music into television shows, video games, commercials, advertisements, and more, visit HowToLicenseYourMusic.com. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Music, Money, and Life. I'm really excited today to bring you guys a composer and songwriter, uh, Mr. David Frederick. And David is someone who's who's done a, a ton of TV and film work. Um, I'm looking on his website right now, and just, just to name a few shows out, out of literally probably hundreds of, of placements, he, he's had music on shows like Pretty Little Liars, The Big Bang Theory, ABC Sports, Real Vice Miami, Warehouse 13, Oddities, Pioneers. The list is, is too long. It goes on and on. David, how are you doing today? I'm well, my friend. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, great to uh, be speaking with you t- today, David. As you know, we tried to do this before the New Year, and we had some technical difficulties, so David was kind enough to reschedule and, and try this again. So glad to uh, have you back on, David. Likewise. Thank you for having me. So, David, let's do this. I like to, you know, you've done a lot of things in the TV and film world. You don't, you've done a lot of licensing and, and scoring as well. I'd like to start with kind of telling people your your story because like I, I was saying last time, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. I, I speak with a lot of like publishers and supervisors and a lot of people in the industry that are sort of on the publishing and supervision end of things. But I think it's almost more insightful for songwriters to hear from other songwriters that are actually really doing this successfully. So I thought what would make the most sense is to sort of start at the beginning and retrace your steps to how you got to where you are today, which is someone who makes a full-time living uh, doing this. Sure. Well, you know, like all things, everybody has a different journey, and and my journey kind of started out um, a little bit different. You know, I I grew up in a musical family. Uh, My great or my grandfather used to be a guitar player in the Gene Autry Cowboy Band, and my dad was a, a noted musician, keyboard player as well. And you know, I was very fortunate because um, I grew up in the electronic music industry. My dad was uh, one of the founders at ARP Synthesizers. So, you know, I started playing uh, the piano and organ at around age two and was really fortunate because I literally had, you know, ARP 2600s, 2500s, Odysseys, Pro Soloists, uh, you know, organs, pianos, all that stuff um, in my house from you know, literally day one. So for me, uh, it just was always natural for me, you know, just these are things that uh, you get to use. And of course, my dad uh, being with ARP, 
you know, really exposed me to a lot of unique opportunities and experiences that um, I was very fortunate to have. So, you know, I, I kind of took this dual track where um, electronic music has always been a, a, a critical component in my career and in my life and really opened up a lot of doors for me, not only from the fact that, you know, kind of hanging around my dad, getting to meet all these pioneers in electronic music, um, but also gave me an opportunity at a very young age to start getting engaged and doing things like product specialist work. I mean, when I was 10 years old, uh, I was asked by Roland Synthesizers to uh, perform um, you know, throughout the country and at the NAMM shows, uh, you know, playing their new synthesizers. And from there, it kind of moved on. And, you know, you you start getting the opportunity to work with other people. And and then before you know it, people start calling you and saying, hey, you know, can you help me with this? And can you help me program this synthesizer, which kind of leapfrogs into other things. And that really kind of gave me an opportunity to get engaged uh, through that back door, so to speak. And then the next thing you know is somebody says, wow, you know, you, you actually compose music. Well, yes, I do. Well, we're working on this and we're working on that. And I, I actually got my first commercial product or project uh, that way where a recording studio I had done some session work at said, hey, look, we got a got a jingle we need work on. Uh, do you know how to write jingles? And of course, you know, I didn't. And the Internet didn't really mm-hmm. exist back then. But uh you know, I figured, well, there I listened to a couple of them. They seemed to fall within the 60 second range. And uh, anyways, long story short, you know, I had an opportunity to write a commercial, which led to more commercial work. And that led to some TV work and so forth and so on. So it was kind of a, an interesting but but not that uncommon uh, track, so to speak. That That's really cool. That, that, and time wise, what year was this? Because I know you've been doing this for quite a while. When did you, for example, write your first jingle around what year was that? Boy, that was probably early 90s, I would I would argue. Probably the early 90s. Yeah, if I go back, it was for a local Toyota dealership of all things. <laughs> oh, cool. And so how have you seen, because I, I know you've been doing this all along, how have you sort of seen the licensing sync world change over that period of time? You know, actually, it's quite a bit, Aaron. I mean, you know, the the licensing and music library and and syncing thing, I mean, it's really, it's changed a lot. You know, before it was people were looking for very specific things, but now music libraries have become such a huge component of, you know, music placement and, and getting your music placed in other areas that, you know, it kind of, to, to put it in one sense, at least from my experience, it used to be really binary where, you know, you'd have to go to music supervisors or publishers and try to get your work involved there and, and placed, whether it was in film, television, video games, commercial work. But now it's it's kind of this hydra, you know, where there's all these different heads where, you know, in one sense, it's a great opportunity because there's more opportunities to get your music placed. But in the same regard, um, at least from my perspective, I find it a little more complicated and uh, labor intensive to be able to manage all of these things. And of, yes, mm-hmm. it's great that there's more opportunities, but also it requires you to be more disciplined and, and, and actually take some management, some business side of, of your career versus just, hey, let's just send out some CDs and see what happens, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes total yeah, sense. No, that- How have your the relationships sort of changed over the years. Are you still working with people that you connected with way back in the nineties or are you constantly connecting with new people? How has that worked out for you? 
Well, you know, I've always kind of taken the approach that a lot of this stuff is relationship based. And, you know, the first and foremost thing that and maybe this goes back to, you know, my childhood and growing up in the electronic music space and getting to hang out with my dad and see the business side of things as well. For me, I've always, you know, looked at it, uh, you know, kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing, you know, in one sense. Uh, yes, I'd like to consider myself an artist. I compose music and I compose music in various styles for various digital mediums. Um, but I'm also a businessman and, you know, I am the product. So I, I kind of take this approach of this is a business, business is relationships and I'm delivering a product for a client. Uh, even if I, you know, have a great relationship with that client, they're still hiring me because of the product that I deliver. And the way in which I deliver that product. So, you know, the relationships, you know, I always try to maintain positive relationships going forward because you never know when they're going to pan out. And, you know, every now and again, you know, I'll get a call from somebody I did work with, you know, like a blast from the past. And, you know, and it's great that they still, you know, think fondly of me and really enjoy the work that I've done for them or music that I've written for their projects and you know, that works out, but it's, 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 um, it's a dynamic process. You know, I mean, I was just thinking about this today before I call, you know, I typically spend two days a week doing nothing but networking, marketing, reaching mm-hmm. out to clients, uh, you know, just if nothing else, just staying top of mind, you know, the old adage out of sight, out of mind. Um, it's, it's tough, you know, and the thing that I think makes it tougher for, for us as composers is, you know, probably back in the 90s and the 80s and even the early 2000s, um, it was a little bit, I don't want to say easier, but if you were, if you were, a, you could deliver good product, uh, you had the relationship skills, uh, and you had the right gear, you know, you would have a much better chance of being successful. The problem or the opportunity, depending on your perspective today is technology is democratized um, the ability of, of artists and composers to not only write and produce super high quality product, but also have all these different mediums in which to get that product out there. So the good news is for all of us is we have so many more opportunities and ways to get our, our work out there. The bad news is there are millions of us out there of varying degrees of quality and professionalism, um, trying to get that work. So it, it muddies the water, which means you know, in my opinion, you've, you've got to work a little bit harder. You've got to differentiate and you've got to maintain and build new relationships. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you said something sort of interesting that, that really rings true in my experience. It almost seems like because there's so many, because it's easier in a sense to, to get music out there, it seems like there's a lot more sort of mediocre music out there that you're competing with in a sense, in the sense that it takes up people's time so if you're trying to get your music into a music library or with a music publisher or even directly to a supervisor they're typically sort of inundated with all this music like you said a varying degrees of, of quality so how do you sort of rise above that that barrage of competition yeah it's a great point and you know i wish i had a magic formula i wish there was <laughs> you know hey aaron i do this and it works every time and, and it simply doesn't um it's really hard you know what we do is hard. You know, it's not easy. And to be successful at it requires a lot of work. And I think, you know, if I were to give advice to anybody, I mean, there's probably the first piece of advice I ever got. uh, And I see it, 
you know, kind of floating around out there, but it rings so true is, look, um, this is a business, you know, and you may consider yourself an artist and we all do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to differentiate in your mind the difference between being an artist and developing and delivering a product. You know, you are in business to sell your product and your product is your music. And yes, you know, we all wear our, you know, our emotions on our sleeves and we work really hard and we're, we're all artists, so forth and so on. But at the end of the day, this is business. And, and frankly, it's big business. You know, I mean, when you look at what it costs to make a film or television production or a video game or a commercial advertisement, you know, these are not things to take lightly. And when somebody wants to use your work, um, there is a minimum expectation that the quality of your work is at, you know, whatever that level is, that professional quality level is. And, And that's the minimum just to, in my opinion, to enter the game, um, it, it's, it's, you know, one of those things, I think that's where I think some people fail is, well, I'm an artist and if they don't like my music, well, then there you have it. Well, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that attitude if you expect to make, you know, a full-time living from it. So I guess that's probably the first thing, but I think the other thing too, and this is an interesting, I, I think about this often too. My most successful placements with libraries or with productions or, you know, music that I've created that's been placed. It's interesting because it's not music that I would normally create a bunch of tracks like. Like I get requests all the time from libraries and television shows and reality shows for, you know, suspense and dramatic suspense and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and I produce a ton of that stuff. You can hear it all over my website. But it's funny, the things that have been most successful that I've placed have been the most like odd pieces of music that I've written. You know, I, I wrote mm. this thing, you know, like for Pretty Little Liars. It was, uh, it was all choir based and, was very dissonant and odd and and they absolutely loved it and it was just like wow i didn't really ever think that somebody would want that piece of music but they did and then you know i think a big bang theory it was a it was kind of a an irish i don't know jig type traditional piece of music and again just one of those things i was in the mood i just wrote this piece of music and and i i I, you sent it through one of my libraries and sure enough you know, that was picked up by Big Bang Theory. And cool. And that wasn't that wasn't something you were commissioned to write. It was just something you were sort of inspired in the moment. to. Yeah. To and, 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 and one of the libraries that I've had a very long relationship with, you know, who's very proactive about publishing and pushing my music to supervisors and productions, you know, again. So it's it's they they were able to take that piece and pitch it to Big Bang Theory and, and, and they loved it and used it in one of the uh, the episodes. But. I guess my point is, is the music was not something that I typically normally write or is what I would categorize your classic library styled music. It was, you know, and I've had a number of, of instances like that where you, you know, you end up writing something really interesting, but you're like, yeah, who the heck's ever going to use that thing? It's just, it's just not, you know, it doesn't fit the norm, but yet that seems to be what's most successful. That's really interesting. And, and do you have any sort of explanation as to why why it works out that way? Why are the things that you least expect to get picked up? Why do those pieces get picked up? Is it just because they're they're more unique and original? 
Well, it's a great question, and I think there's probably a couple of answers to it. I think the first part is what you just said. Um, they're unique and original. So um, they fit unique circumstances within the story or the narrative of the episode or, or the series. So that's one thing where it's just, you know, that happened to hit the right spot. Um, the other part of it, I think, is there is so much music being produced that sounds the same. And, and look, I'm guilty of it too. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I get, I get requests for stuff that sounds exactly like other stuff, but that's just, you know, it's particularly in, in reality TV, but that's the stuff that sells. That's the stuff that gets placed and used because that's the stuff they need to produce those types of shows. So again, you know, I could look at it from an artist perspective and say, well, I'm not doing that. You know, because I don't want to sound like everybody else, but I also look at it as a, you know, as a composer who wants to make a living and has a wife and five kids to provide for. So oh, wow. if, if family, the production, wow. company, family. Yeah, well, we figured out what was causing it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we, uh, right. we're very blessed. We are very blessed. But, you know, so, you, awesome. you know, it's yes, you're going to have to create music that Well, look at it this way. If paintbrushes are selling. And you want to be in the paintbrush business, then guess what? You want to make paintbrushes. If you know something else is selling, then you want to make that. So my point is, is if you want your music to get placed and be used, then look at what's be, what's in demand right now. And it's you know you could say it's I don't know if I would go so far as to say a lot of it's garbage, but a lot of it's redundant. A lot of it's the same style of music. You know, a lot of weird tension sounds with percussion. And but hey. That's what sells. That's what you're making money on. So when you have these unique pieces of music, I think it's one of those things where, again, it's unique to the narrative, but also it catches their eye because it's not the same old stuff that's out there because there's just so much of it out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this question, David. Uh, so yesterday I interviewed uh, John Anderson. He's the CEO and owner of a publishing company called Honeypot in, in L.A. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with with those guys, but I asked him and I'm sort of asking, you know, different people that I interview. I'm sort of asking a lot of the same questions just to get different people's perspective in the industry. And one of the questions I asked John is, is do you think it's it's kind of practical to try and make a full-time living licensing music and he, and he actually said no that although it's you know it's a viable income stream for a lot of musicians it's 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 definitely not the easiest industry to make a full-time living f- from but one of the questions i asked you is if you're doing this full-time and, and you said yes so i'm sort of wondering what your perspective is on doing this at, as a full-time living and, and how you're able to do that, you know, and I know we're, we're kind of talking about that right now, but do you think this is a viable way for most musicians to make a living from? It's a, it's a great question, Aaron. And, I, and let me answer it probably in a couple of different ways. The first way to, to answer it is it's very difficult to make a full-time living just off of your placements, just mechanically. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me expound upon that. I mean, think about it this way. <clears throat> Let's assume you're moderately successful in creating music that, you know, you have multiple uh, outlets in which to get your music placed. You get paid through your PRO quarterly. Yeah. So yeah. that 
in and of itself is a challenge because how do you pay the bills between, you know, your quarterly payments or royalties? So that's one side of it. Now, granted, if you get an opportunity where there's upfront sync money um, for the placement, then that's great, you know, because that could be anywhere from 200 bucks to 20,000 bucks, you know, if you're really lucky and you get it placed in a, in a great situation. Yeah. But those yeah. are far few between, you know, I mean, unless you're writing a music for a main theme or, you know, you just had something they had to have and they had the money to pay for it. But that's not something that, you know, is is measurable and, and predictable. So, you know, I guess, yes, you can do it. And the way, you know, I look at it is um, all of my music placements through libraries and anything that I place directly with a music supervisor I have a long-term outlook on it. It's for me, it's, you know, some people invest in 401ks and IRAs and all these <laughs> other, you know, things to me, when I write music for libraries, I have to, you know, cause believe me, I, I, I wish I could tell you that I'm, you know, Oh, this is how it's done. This is the way to do it. No, believe me, I go through the doubt and everything else. I'm like, man, this sucks. You know, I'm creating all this music. I'm putting and sending it out to these libraries because they're asking for it. And then it like seems to go in a black hole. And then, you know, two quarters later, oh, wow. Hey, I just, you know, made a couple hundred bucks off of that piece. Didn't even know it was placed. You know what I'm saying? So it's frustrating from that perspective. But if you if you try to get yourself to think about it as an annuity, you're making an investment in your retirement or you're making an investment in your future because, that stuff that will continue, it, particularly if you get it in a, in a good show that has you know syndication and reruns and so forth, that money – I mean I, I make money on pieces of music that I've written back in 1998, and that music still gets placed. And I'm still making money on it. And it's it's like, you know, I, I don't laugh, but, I you know, I just kind of chuckle. I was like, man, that's amazing to me, you know, that I wrote that music. It got placed. And yet I'm still generating, you know, royalties on it. And so, you know, so when you look at that from a placement standpoint, I think you've got to take a long term perspective that I'm making an investment that if these things get placed, it'll it'll continue to pay. And it will it will eventually start getting to a point where it's like, hey, I'm making some pretty decent money on this stuff. And I know on the 15th of every month, BMI will make a deposit into my bank account. And, you know, some days it's some quarters it's less, some quarters it's a lot more. But but that's, I think, first and foremost, one way to look at it. The second thing I think, which is really important if you want to be successful, is, you know, you'll hear you hear this term a lot, these multiple streams of income. So you can't put all your eggs in that one basket. That's one kind of stream of income. The other one is, hey, look, can I and should I, you know, be reaching out to music supervisors? And the answer, of course, is yes, you know, because they're always looking for music and they don't always go to the libraries. And sometimes they don't have time to go to a library and say, hey, find me these types of things, because guess what? I got to turn it around in 24 hours. So that's that's another way to get that music placed and, and utilized. I would caution, though, that if you're going to take that approach, not only have a library of music that you can make available to them or, or you can go through your own library and find, but also be able to write music very quickly. Because some I've had many times where I've been a music supervisor will reach out and say, hey, we're looking for this. I need it by tomorrow morning. Um, do you have something? And I don't. 
But guess what? I can write it very quickly and I can get it to you in, you know, within the next whatever, 24 hours. And so the, there's been opportunities where if I wasn't able to write proficiently and quickly in multiple styles, I probably would have lost out on an opportunity. So having that ability to produce and have the ability to produce high quality product quickly, um, I think is is going to help you land more opportunities. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And that sort of leads to the next question I wanted to ask you, which which is you've alluded to working with different libraries and working with supervisors as well. How are you placing the majority of your music? Is it through libraries and publishers or supervisors as well? How does that sort of balance out? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I'd argue it's a floating 60-40, uh, 60% library, 40% all of the above, uh, meaning, you know, music supervisors. Um, and those supervisors could be independent supervisors. They could be staff supervisors at, at studios and networks. Um, you know, so it, it, it fluctuates. Um, and, you know, over the last year, I'd say, I've I've tried to spend a little more time cultivating relationships with some of the the bigger um, well that's not the right word uh, but more successful libraries um, mm-hmm. and and it's harder to get your work in there because they're very particular about the style of music and the quality of you know the level of quality of your music. Um, Fortunately, you know, I've been able to, to get music placed with almost every library that I've, I've tried to go after, but I have made a strategic decision I, almost a year ago that, look, I want to find libraries that are not only placing music in productions where I think, you know, I could write successful music in, but also is placing a lot of music there because obviously I want to yeah. be successful and, and drive revenue from that. So, you know, I've looked at these, but again, you know, I'd be lying if I told you these were just, you know, these fantastic relationships and, and they are good relationships. I have very good relationships with all the libraries that I work with um, and they're, you know, they go back and forth. But, you know, libraries, it's a tough gig because, you know, they'll ask you for music and you'll produce that music and then it goes into a black hole. You know, it's not like and I, and I wish, you know, there was a way to do this and I wish there was some sort of. uh imperative that complied them to do this that once you send them the music they kind of give you a heads up after 30 days or a quarter and say yeah hey we got your music we put it here we placed it there we did this and most libraries never do that they simply you just you know you find out when you get your i can relate to that it's (laughs) it's really frustrating and yeah like you i wish there was some and there's a couple different libraries i'm with where they communicate a little bit but yeah, like you, I, f- I feel like it's really frustrating and, and almost, I mean, I know they don't do it on purpose. I'm sure they're just busy and there's, you know, a handful of them and there's hundreds of us. But it, it, it almost seems a little rude to, you know, you sign something you invest so much energy and emotion into and then there's yeah. very, very little communication about it. It's a very, very frustrating part of this business. It is. It, it really is because, you know. What ends up happening, at least for me, what ends up happening is the artist ego starts to show up and it's like, hey, I wrote all this music and I gave it to you and I gave you the rights to use it. And I'm not even hearing anything from you. And, you know, I'm going to write music for somebody. You know, what I'm saying? You, you get that 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 battle of both sides of the mind. But it is it is very frustrating. And, 
You know, and even, I mean, look, there's libraries where I'll even reach out. Hey, how you guys doing? How's the music going? Have you guys placed anything? And, you know, you don't hear anything. And then the next email you get, send more music in this style. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, it's just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Um, do you, do you, you, know, do, you, do you think, David, sorry to cut you off, but do you, do you feel like it's just a result of them being overworked and super busy and they just don't have time to, to get back to everybody? Do you, do you feel like that's what it is? Or do you feel like sometimes I just wonder if there's just, you know, so many artists trying to break into this that they almost don't really don't really have to be super communicative because they know, you know, there's a line of artists waiting to get in the door either way. No, I don't know. I wouldn't be so cynical um, to, to think that I, I honestly what I think it is, is probably a combination. It's. um you know, some of these libraries are now pretty big, you know, as far as like an organization is concerned. And they're usually tied in with, you know, maybe they even have their own production company that does, you know, film and television or special effects or God knows what else. So I think, you know, from my experience anyways, what I've seen is some of these libraries that I've worked with, they've got A&R people whose job is to find, you know, composers and artists that uh, fill a need within their library and to get them signed on and to you know work with them on, hey, we've got to search for this or we need this style of music to round out their libraries. And, and that's what they do. And that's all they do. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you've got mm-hmm. other people within that same organization whose job it is to manage how that music is used and to place it with other places. And sometimes those two groups of people don't talk to each other. Um, so I think in some cases, it's it's simply just a, a matter of mechanics. You know, they don't talk to each other. One one contact is responsible for sourcing and acquiring artists and content. The other part of that business is doing something with that content and they don't talk to each other. And when you think about a library that's trying to place music in you know hundreds of productions, uh, you know, if they place two of your songs and three of somebody else's and four of, you know, and on and on and on. There's no way for them to be able to keep track of that and then communicate that back to send you an email and say, hey, Dave, you know, guess what? We just placed your music someplace else. So I think with the larger libraries, it's just a, 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 you know, just mechanics of how the business works. Now, on the smaller libraries, um, you know, I've had a lot of them come up to me and, you know, we'll we'll say, hey, great news. We just placed your music with X, Y, and Z. Congratulations. That's awesome. You know, usually that's with a bigger placement um, or... They'll reach out to you and say, hey, look, look, we want to have an opportunity to place this track. Um, there's a sync fee. It's going to be X amount of dollars. And then the royalties on the back end. Are you cool with that? And we'll send you the agreement. Um, you know, so you kind of know that way. So it, it's it's a combination. But I don't think it's we just got so much going on. We don't want to talk to you type of thing. I, I just I really do think it's a, a matter of mechanics. But it sure would be nice as the artist and the content creator to you know, maybe give me a heads up or send out a newsletter to all your composers and say, hey, we place this and we place that. And even that would be better than kind of just sending music to a black hole. But yeah. And and like you said, some libraries are better than others. I mean, I, I have one publisher in particular that will from time to time actually call me when when she gets a placement for me, which is really cool, you know, when yeah. she knows. But then there's, like you said, other libraries that I don't hear anything thing from them, and that, then sometimes I'll look on my statement and see a placement that happened six months ago that I didn't even know about. But um, yeah. 
David, I really appreciate you doing this today. You know, my, my whole mission with my website and this pod, podcast, really, if I had to define the mission, it's to show other musicians a way, you know, to, to the extent that there is a formula, a way to make a living as a musician. So I really appreciate you, someone who's out there doing it full time, coming on and, and sharing your, your story and insight. And uh, let's do this. Let's tell people where they can go to learn more about you. Your website is dfmusicgroup.com, dfmusicgroup.com. So I encourage all of you to go go check out David's website, check out what he's up to, look at his really long list of credits, listen to his music. Thank you so much for doing this. Have a great day. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Aaron. Thank you, sir.